Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today, I have Alex Kubacek of Understory Weather coming to us from Madison, Wisconsin. How's your day going, Alex? It's going great. It's uh, not too cold today in Wisconsin, December. I was just in Iowa uh, two days ago, and I was it was pleasant. It was really nice. It was actually great weather. <laughs> I guess yeah. this is something you're familiar with, the weather patterns and global warming, perhaps, or just a, a nice warm winter i mean yeah if winters if winters would always be this nice uh be a lot more bearable to live up here <laughs> yeah 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 um i did live in illinois for one year and i grew up in colorado which you know you think snow mountains cold but the one year in illinois i lived was the coldest bitterest winter i've ever experienced it was something different <laughs> yeah so, yeah when you get down to negative 40 uh below wind chill um it's an experience for sure. Do you do ice fishing or uh, any of that sort of stereotypical uh, Wisconsin winter fun? Snowmobiling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to do something to, uh, you know, spend your time during the long winters here because it takes, uh, you know, it's about six or seven months of winter. Very good. All right. Let's get into it. So what do you do? Speaking of w- weather, what do you do? What does Understory do? Yeah, so uh, at Understory, what we do is we assess the impact of weather uh, and atmospheric conditions inside a city uh, so we can help communities and businesses uh, utilize the ground truth data to better understand how weather is impacting them and what to do about that. Um, Because when you think about uh, the current weather data that you're getting out of your your weather apps, um, it's using radar and satellite, which is looking up at the sky, but not really what's happening on the ground. Uh, and so that's that's good enough to tell you if you need a sweater or you need an umbrella, but it's not enough to actually make real business decisions or any decisions that have any impact with the weather. It's just nowhere near accurate. And so that's why I created Understory is so that we can define that information provided to people and businesses so they can make those, those types of decisions. And so we do that through deploying and operating ruggedized networks uh, throughout a city that are maintenance-free. So they basically last for over 10 years and allows us to to use a pun from my company's name, tell the story under the clouds. The story under the clouds. Oh, that makes sense. Interesting. And so these are, what's the form factor here? How big are these uh, collect data collection devices? Yeah, so uh, they're about two feet tall and we put them on top of commercial uh, buildings. And so it essentially allows us to measure the weather every two to three miles throughout a city. And then we have our um, fusion AI that takes all that data and maps it together so we can actually understand what's happening at every point throughout a city. And we've tested that with uh, insurance companies from across the United States and found that we have 95% litigation quality data at every single point inside our network. Yeah, that was my next question is like, who's the customer? It sounds like insurance companies, Weather services or, or more businesses? More so businesses. Uh, so insurance companies, uh, they use this information to understand how their policyholders are impacted after a storm. Uh, and then we're also live in Argentina, uh, helping farmers actually understand how the weather's impacting their fields so they can make irrigation decisions or better decisioning around when to actually harvest. Uh, and that's really important because you need to actually position a lot of equipment when you're doing the harvest. Um, and 
basically understanding how close that is within a week uh, really allows you to pinpoint that and potentially have much better yields. So is it predictive? Is there a predictive angle too, or is it more just here's what's happening in real time and here's how to use that data or, or both? Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit of both, uh, but mostly the, the low hanging fruits around actually measuring what happened because most of the time uh, people in businesses don't actually know what happened. Uh, and so having that information, like for instance, after a storm moves through an area, uh, through a city, it damages uh, a lot of buildings and the insurance companies basically just wait by the phone uh, for you to call and file a claim. They have no idea if your home is actually damaged or not uh, until understory came along. And so an insurance company is using this to give me a scenario there. Yeah. So, uh, so let's say a, a large hailstorm is moving throughout an area. So we had a uh, $2 billion uh, hailstorm in uh, Denver, Colorado about a couple of years ago. And so essentially what happened is the storm pushed through the city um, and it, we measured uh, over 5,000 individual hailstones, which we stitched together to actually create a map of understanding the distribution of hail throughout the city. And so based on how our, our sensors actually measure that hail is that we knew exactly what angle and how hard that hail was hitting a building. So we can tell you exactly what buildings were damaged. And so one of the major problems in the US uh, because of climate change, but also because of the recession that happened uh, 10 years ago is that the, the contracting industry, the roofing industry is creating a lot more repairs than actually need to happen. And so we found across the insurance industry is that on average, uh, insurance companies are seeing about 20, 25% fraud. We've seen it as high as 40% fraud. And so by having that information, we allow them to combat fraud and allow them to lower rates uh, across the country. Yeah, that was, I was, going to guess that insurance companies are using this to battle fraud. Farmers are using it to kind of optimize their operations. Um, cool. Any other big use cases? Yeah. And the, the other thing we just, that we're really excited about, and I was going to plug this uh, more towards the end is we added air quality to uh, our networks as well. So cities are using that to actually understand how to actually reduce emissions because you saw with uh, COP, 24, uh, the past week, you know, one of the big things that they were talking about was how do you actually, you know, measure those emissions, report those emissions, and how that's done is just kind of like, well, we understand kind of what energy is being produced and kind of the general traffic, so let's estimate the emissions, but there hasn't really been a way to actually measure it. And so with our network, we're able, we're actually enabling those cities to see what steps they're taking uh, to actually reduce those emissions. So, you know, if they take a diesel ban, for instance, or if they're are issuing tolls or, or blocking different parts of the city off to kind of basically improve the air quality, they can actually see what impact that has on emissions and actually allow the city to slowly reach their emission goals, which are really important for basically slowing a warming planet. And what sort of coverage do you have in the U.S.? Are you, can you blanket the whole U.S. or do you use certain cities and regions? Yeah, so it depends on the actual application. So right now we're live in five cities. And in the U.S., our largest network is in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, where we have about 150 weather stations across the entire area. It's the most comprehensive weather network that exists. Uh, and that has allowed us to basically understand those different weather patterns. And we actually use the information that we learned from our Dallas network to basically understand how to improve weather data throughout the entire country. Uh, with agricultural regions, it then depends on the growing region, what type of crops. And so we basically map the infrastructure to the the value that we're creating with the end customer. I almost don't want to ask this question, but are you seeing, you know, global warming just terrifies me in so many ways, but are you seeing some 
you're, you have a bird's eye view or canary in the coal mine view of this. Are you seeing anything that's not, you know, widely reported or any surprises from what you're seeing in the data? Um, um, I, on the, the weather data, I mean, we've had the networks up for about five years and you need about kind of 30 years of data to you know, see a, a climate trend. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that data set at one point, but uh, not enough to actually tell us anything. On the air quality side, though, we've seen a lot higher air quality uh, problems than what's been reported. And so that's a little concerning, but that's kind of why we've created this network is to help cities, you know, actually manage that in a lot more effective way. That's interesting. It, on the one hand, like I remember, I'm old enough to remember like when LA was just so smoggy, you know, and even Colorado where I grew up had had some pretty smoggy days around Denver and stuff. And, you know, just with cleaner emissions, things have improved on that front, which is sort of encouraging. But there's yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work to get uh, to do to actually get to those. Uh, I think they want to do forty percent emissions uh, in the next fifteen years. So you know, taking that down is is yeah, it's going to take a lot of work. Great. Um, well, this is a cool space. Yeah, one of the coolest startup stories I've heard recently was a sail drone. I think their company was called Sail Drone that was sending mm-hmm. out autonomous sailing drones into the ocean to collect weather data. I guess, uh, do you have any connection to those guys or just, uh, do you follow those, that story? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's really interesting yeah, because the same thing that, or it's very similar to our business where essentially, you know, there's not a lot of information about how weather is actually functioning on kind of the, the ocean level. You know, we have, uh, sensors that are these buoy sensors that have basically fallen into disarray. Uh, so they're solving a huge data gap, um, in that aspect to help with you know, maritime, um, so, you know, it's very similar to our business, except we're, we're land-based. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's talk about fundraising. Um, so how much have you guys raised over how many rounds? Yeah. So we've raised over 17 million uh, over three rounds. Uh, and most of that's come from venture capitalists. And in what was the, let's take it chronologically. Was the first one just a seed round from VCs and uh, what did you have back, back in the early days? Yeah, so that was that was two point one uh, million. That was led by uh, True Ventures back in I want to say twenty fourteen. What were you doing before this, or where did this idea come from? Because I think this is an interesting idea. I'd love to hear the the quick backstory. Yeah, so um, my g- general passion in the weather started when I did Hurricane Katrina cleanup uh, in two thousand five. Uh, so I was essentially went down to help with. Um, basically cleaning out buildings that have been, you know, seen about like eight or 10 feet of floodwaters uh, to basically keep them from molding out. Uh, and then, you know, just by looking around at the city and the devastation that was caused, you know, it kind of hit me upside the head that, you know, we really don't understand these, these weather risks as, as much as we should to actually be resilient as, you know, uh, society. And so I started researching, um, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison to research atmospheric science, and I was working on uh, something called cloud microphysics, which is the study of how particles interact with each other uh, inside the sky to cause thunderstorms to grow or shrink. And essentially what we were, were doing is we were trying to help with short-term forecasting, so longer lead times on tornadoes, hailstorms, uh, and so on. But the problem was is that no matter how good our algorithms actually became, uh, there was no data to actually validate them. We had one data set from 1982, uh, and that you know wasn't really enough to actually validate them. So I created Understory to solve that that data gap, um, and we've seen similar data gaps and in, in air quality as well. Um, and so 
I started that company out of Madison and, you know, you talk about um, you know, basically trying to raise capital at that time. So this is 2012 at the time, you know, the investors in the area just didn't want to touch hardware. Like they, they weren't, you know, I've talked to almost every single uh, angel and uh, angel group and, and venture capitalists in, in Wisconsin. And they just, like no hardware, not not even going to touch it. You know, this is this is too scary. So we actually had to move the company out of uh, Madison, and we went to Boston mm. uh, to you know have you know a better opportunity for raising money on the coasts. Uh, and that's where we actually uh, through networking essentially were able to connect with uh, True Ventures. Um, and why I tell that story is really interesting. It has um, kind of a connection to our latest round. So our our main investor that came in. Uh, with this round is Revolution, a rise of the rest. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with that, that's uh, Steve Cases. He's the, um, the the founder of AOL. And uh, he basically created this fund that would help um, startups in the middle of the country be able to find capital. So it's, you know, it's relatively easy to find capital on the coasts. In the middle of the country, you know, it's pretty tough. And so our story of, you know, trying to raise money in Wisconsin um, and essentially failing at that, um, and then having to move to the coast to actually get to that really resonated with them. Uh, and then, you know, over the course of growing understory, we've actually been fortunate enough to move back to uh, Wisconsin, back to the middle of the country, because there's a huge opportunity um, to have great talent, uh, great standards of living. Um, and what I like to say is we basically, you have the ability to do really cool technology, but also have babies. So you have this tech and babies <laughs> effect, <laughs> which, which is great. I'm in San Francisco where prices are shockingly high, of course. And and then I went to my uncle's wedding in Janesville, Wisconsin over the summer. And of course, every time I go to a new place, I drive around with Zillow app open and just like kind of uh, war, what do they call war chalk or whatever, you know, the yep. real estate prices. And it's amazing what you can get for 200K or 100K buys you a house, you know, it's like shocking. So yeah. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Single bedroom apartment in Boston is, uh, you know, was substantially more than the mortgage on my house in Wisconsin. So yeah, it's it's crazy. You're you're hustling in in Madison, uh, not finding much success. And so, how did you just move out to Boston and break into the the startup or VC scene? Did you have connections out there? Did you literally just how how'd you do it? How'd you build a network? Yeah, I mean, it was so essentially we joined a uh, startup accelerator called uh, Generator uh, shortly after starting the company in Wisconsin. And it was through one of their, their limited partners that connected us to uh, an investor in Boston called Bolt, which is a, a seed uh, hardware fund, essentially. And so that, Bolt? that Bolt. you know, they invested Bolt, B-O-L-T. Um, yeah. So they're called Bolt because what they do is they, they invest in you, but at the same time, they also Bolt a hardware team onto your company. So because when you're launching a new hardware product, you need a lot more expertise than you typically do to actually launch a startup product. You need electrical engineers, uh, mechanical engineers, manufacturing engineers, industrial engineers. And it's really hard for a company with very limited resources to hire all that expertise because all those people need to have 20, 30 years experience to actually get something that uh, quickly off the ground. So when you were raising that, did you have a prototype of your collection device? Did you have a data set up in a city, a proof of concept, or was this more conceptual? It was more conceptual at that point. Uh, we, we had a general prototype, but it was nowhere near ready for scale. And that's why, you know, we, we worked with them because that was, or that is essentially what they can do is help 
take your your prototype um, and allow you to actually turn it into something that's manufacturable that can't be scaled. Did you have any market validation, or was this really just vision that you were pitching and you know selling to investors at this point? We had one early customer um, that had bought into the vision. Uh, but nothing had been, obviously nothing had been deployed yet at that point, but that was, so small early market validation allowed us to secure that, that initial round, but it took us here from starting the company to getting to that point, you know, it was, I think it's about 18 months. So, you know, it was a long slog to actually get to that point. How many investors do you think you talked to for that, that seed round? Do you remember what your funnel looked like? Uh, for that, so for that round, um, you know, including the, the Wisconsin investors, probably like 30, 40. Um, for that, uh, and then the following that the actual seed round that was 2.1 million is probably around 30 uh, mm -hmm. again. Um, and then we raised our Series A. We we're probably around 100 investors that we talked to. So, um, you know, but that's being able to um, you know talk to that many different investors has always been about networking. Um, so that allowed us to you know, essentially get our story in front of that you know as many investors as possible. And for the Series A, what were you pitching? I'm assuming still the vision, but did you have more of a, a proof of concept and prototypes? And For the Series A, uh, essentially what we were pitching was the, the proven technology and uh, some customer proof. So we had a network live in Kansas City, show the technology worked, it was scalable, uh, and we were able to actually map our output to something that the customer found incredibly important. Gotcha. And so for that, were you only going after hardware VCs again, or more broadly, data data VCs, or what were your? How'd you build the target list? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, mostly our our target list came from you know who who in our network is able to provide a, a warm intro, and so at that, what we were looking for with the Series A wasn't actually in the hardware realm or even in the data realm because we had built a team around actually doing that. We were looking for uh, you know more operational focused VC um, that you know. We, Basically, you know, someone who had been an operator at a company and had that skill set to actually help us take it from, you know, that initial area and um, allow us to actually build a company that that scales along with the product. Uh, so that basically allowed us to, you know, that's why there were so many investors that we could talk to because that fits the bill for you know, a lot of different investors on the coast and the middle of the country. Yeah, yeah. And how long did Series A take? Did you have some good momentum or was it a, a slog as they often are? <laughs> Uh, I, th I think it was uh, between five and six months. So I think that's about standard for the, the Series A. What was the hardest part about that? Was there still the objection to the fact that you're building hardware? Because that does. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so yeah, and we, we learned a lot from that objection. And so essentially, like, basically, like when you're selling a product, you want to qualify out as many leads as possible. So you know that you're not wasting your time convincing them. Uh, and so basically that's, you know, it was part of the introduction, you know, is this interesting, you know, this is a deep infrastructure play, deep technology play. It's not your typical SaaS uh, company. Um, you know, is that something that could be interesting to you? And what we would do also ahead of time is actually research the investors on their website, um, you know, talk about people on our network about, you know, what they've done and what their, their capabilities were. And then also really understanding by basically looking at their profile or their portfolio, you know, who they invested in and what type of technologies, you know, were they actually helping to, to scale? Yeah. Okay. And then let's move forward to the more recent Series B. Did you already move back to Wisconsin first or did, was it part of the, uh, the deal no, we, rise of the rest? Uh, no, we, we have moved. We've been in Wisconsin now for three years. And so we moved shortly after the Series A. 
Did any uh, of your Boston VCs or coastal VCs object to that? You know, a lot of times they like them close by or do they get all the benefits of moving there? Um, I mean, it, it was split, to be honest. I mean, you have uh, some investors that saw the benefits from a talent perspective as well as the runway perspective, but there were some investors that said, you know, you're, you're going to the middle of the country and that's where companies go to die, <laughs> essentially. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that we had to essentially prove them wrong against and we're very happy that we did. So talk about getting in front of Rise of the Rest. I went to their, he did a tour, was it a year or maybe two years ago? And I went to the, it's kind of like a old style revival type show with, you know, the buses roll in, they put on a big, big to do thing. And I, I went to it in Denver. Um, it's a pretty interesting model. What rise of the rest is doing. My opinion is it's brilliant because it's like arbitraging the valuation Delta of startups in the middle of the country, <laughs> right? You're getting good companies for a value bargain price sometimes, um, which I think is really smart, right? The, it's just so much cheaper. Um, but maybe how'd you identify them or did they identify you or how'd you get in touch with Steve Case's group? Yeah. Um, so we, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, serendipitous where, where uh, I was speaking at a conference that was kind of centered around, um, you know, the, the concept of having a company in the middle of the country. So this is called the, the Blueprint uh, Conference that VentureBeat puts on. And so essentially um, I gave a presentation about of why it was exciting to actually be in the Midwest, uh, you know, with having all the, you know, access to talent from the university, as well as the, again, the standard of living and the ability to, you know, provide um, employees with a really good quality of life. Uh, and so, you know, that resonated with uh, the partner that we're now working with at F Revolution, uh, David Hall, and he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we think this is really interesting. We don't see a lot of companies that have actually left the middle of the country to go to the coast and then actually come back. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to be a, a trend that'll, they'll start moving it a lot faster um, because actually when we, whenever we hire for people, uh, we see a lot of people that had either grew up in the middle of the country, moved to the coast and are ready to actually move back uh, for all the reasons that you described with you know, the much better housing market, and, you know, the affordability of everything that's here. So, um, you know, I think that's something that, really resonated to what their, their core message is, is that, you know, you can actually have a really interesting company in the, the middle of the, the country. Yeah, I could almost see you making a case to potential hires considering moving there. It's like, you know, affordability and increasingly mild weather. And we have the data. <laughs> right? Look, it's, it's going to be balmy. It's going to be like Arizona pretty soon in, in Wisconsin. So, um, bad joke, but, um, no, that's, that's really cool. And how, did you run a process for Series B? Did you talk to, you know, a lot of investors for that? Or did you kind of hone in on resol- uh, uh, Revolution? So we weren't, yeah, at, at that point, we weren't um, trying actively raising for a round. So, you know, that, that actually worked out um, in a way that, that, you know, worked for everyone where we could bring them in uh, and then, you know, do this, this growth round um, together, which, you know, we found to be pretty refreshing after, you know, some the, the initial rounds where it's kind of more of a slog. And are they an active investor or, you know, I really like their brand. What, what, what's it like working with them? Uh, they're, they're incredible. I mean, one of the main reasons, um, and one of the main pieces I give uh, as advice to uh, companies who are raising money is when you're 
actually working with an investor, you know, it's not just about the, the cash they're bringing to the company, but it's actually, you know, what the, the skill set that they bring along and the network that they bring along. And so uh, with, with Revolution and Rise of the Rest, um, you know, they have this capability to bring in talent from, you know, pretty much anywhere in the, in the country. And so they've, you know, basically, like you said, they've built their brand touring the country and, and getting to know a lot of startup communities uh, in these pockets throughout the, the actual country and allows for the ability to attract new and exciting talent um, to different parts of the Midwest. And so we've, we've found a lot of benefit with that. And they also have, um, you know, fantastic connections uh, with uh, the government as well, which is helping with our current initiative uh, with the atmosphere and our air quality um, yeah. tracking throughout the city. Very good. All right. One or two more questions. I'll let you get back to your business. Um, what was the hardest part about fundraising or what would you do differently if you started the whole process all over again back in 2012? <laughs> yeah, I think the, I think it's really important to uh, keep in mind when you're raising is that the ability to qualify um, you know, investors out, um, you know, if they're not, investors hate saying no, they'll always say maybe. And if you can't, you have to be able to say no for them, you know, in a lot of different cases. So, um, making sure that you're, you're spending your time correctly with investors that will eventually invest versus investors. that will just let you spin your wheels. Um, so I think that that was really kind of the, the biggest thing for me is that you can have a much more efficient process if you know how to actually, you know, have the right investor with the, the right skill set that fits your company. How do you do that? How do you kind of qualify them? Do you just push them enough to, until they tell you no, or is it more the upfront research? How do you do that? Uh, it's some of the upfront research. And then there's also some, um, you know, questions that you can ask, you know, you know, have you invested in companies like this before? Um, you know, is there, you know, what has been your experience with these types of issues? And so you can understand based on their answers, because you never ask them upfront, are you going to invest? And they're going to say, well, maybe. Uh, but um, you know, actually knowing the, the right questions to ask is really important because that helps you kind of get gauge, like, you know, is this going to be a good working relationship and are they actually going to invest? And at a certain point, you can just put a time limit on the conversation. So if they're, you know, if they're, they've met with you for the fifth time and you haven't really seen any progress, um, you know, then you know that it's, it's not probably not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And what are what typical signs you see that it's going well? Uh, is it just more meetings, more interest? Uh, yeah, yeah. Move, as soon as you can get to a, a partner meeting, uh, so typically how it goes is you meet with a partner at the investment firm and then they escalate it to a partner meeting and then you're talking term sheet. Um, so you know, as long as you can see those, those steps moving forward, it's just like going through um, a sales pipeline where you're looking for basically entrance criteria in each of those sales stages. So you, and most of the time, a lot of venture uh, firms operate in the same way. So you kind of understand exactly where you are in that process. All right. Well, congratulations on raising the most recent round. And uh, you want to talk about, I guess, uh, anything you want to promote? I guess it's to expand into air quality or, or just generally growing the business. What, what's the future hold? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the, the new innovations that we're excited about is atmosphere and that's our air quality network. So we've taken our dynamic weather information and married it with our air quality information, which has given us essentially 50 by 50 meter resolution and real time minute by minute understanding of how air quality is moving throughout the city. And so right now we're essentially looking for cities that want to be innovative, use this uh, cost of technology and to basically harness that to allow them to reduce their emissions. Because as we've talked about pretty much the entire podcast is that climate change is, is, is coming and we need to find ways to reduce those emissions to essentially slow the warming of the planet. Is China a potential customer 
uh, or are they going to be doing their own thing? Do you think? Uh, potentially there's a, there's a lot of, um, focus on air quality in China right now. So that, that's something that we've been keeping a close eye on. All right. This is great. Um, and if people want to learn more, it's, uh, your URL is understoryweather.com, correct? That's correct. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting, very fun and, and cool. And, uh, uh, if you ever need a contact, if you ever want to expand to Janesville, Wisconsin, my uncle <laughs> Chamber of Commerce over there, and he's always awesome getting businesses in. So happy to introduce you. <laughs> well, appreciate that. And thanks again for having me on. All right. Thank you so much. We'll catch you after your next round. Have a good one. Bye.